shame is a horrible thing. It's, it's one of the worst things that our culture has had to endure. It's absolutely led to some of the most destructive human behaviors ever. Um, that aside, do not be ashamed. Do not be embarrassed. Own it. Own what you're feeling. The confusion, the anxiety, the self-doubt, perfectly normal. There is no rule that says you should not feel this. Don't put that off. By all means, seek um, help from mental health specialists. Any, anybody that can help you process and put this in its proper context. You don't have to do this alone. That's Dr. Benjamin Rad, UCLA lecturer and co-founder of Fascination Lab. He's our guest today on Designing Your Career and Life, Your Path to a Meaningful Life. I'm your host, career and life coach, Jordan Manis. Each week, we feature an interview with diverse professionals discussing provocative career-related topics that inspire, transform, and empower you on a path towards a meaningful life. My guest today is Dr. Benjamin Rad, a political scientist at UCLA, a lecturer at the UCLA School of Law, and a teaching fellow at the Center for Middle East Development at the UCLA International Institute. He's also the co-founder of Fascination Lab, an education consulting and strategy firm. Dr. Rad writes, gives frequent public lectures, and offers media appearances on topics ranging from U.S. foreign policy, government and politics of the Middle East, comparative law, and separation of powers in American politics. He holds a PhD in political science from UCLA and a JD from Stanford Law School. And now, my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Rad. Ben, it is so great to have you on the podcast. Uh, it, your career is fa a fascinating one, and I've been eager to talk to you. And so this is this is going to be great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Glad to be here. It's my pleasure. So you've done a lot with your career up to this point, and I'm just curious if you can go backwards and to the time that you know maybe you were an undergrad and you were just starting to think about what you wanted your career to be like. Was this the vision you had? Was it something similar to what, what you ended up doing? Or what were you thinking back then? And then take us through the journey. Um, yeah, great question to start with. So I grew up in uh, Southern California, in, in Santa Monica, actually, not too far from the UCLA campus. Um, moved to the United States as a immigrant, um, refugee from Iran. My family and I were fleeing the 79 revolution. And like a lot of Iranian immigrants, um, at least my parents, they aspired to have their children. Um, my brother was born a few years later here in the States to go into either the sciences or a professional career in law. And so when I, I went through the public school system and made my way to UCLA as an undergrad in 1995, my presumption was I would go along that path. I was somebody who is interested in current events, very attuned to, I felt the pulse of the world in some ways being a refugee wanting to understand better what it was that caused political upheaval in that part of the world. And uh, I went into political science early. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a part of the political slash legal world. And law school made the most sense because I had a fascination with the law, especially constitutional law, as the backbone of uh, US government and politics. And um, so I ended my time at UCLA on a trajectory for law school. I, I, I took a year off because I also tell my students, no rush to go right from undergrad to grad school. Take the time, figure it out. This is your time. 
Um, most good programs, grad programs in any field want a more mature candidate. Um, and, and, and I felt I, there was a lot that I didn't know. So I took a year off um, and I worked a retail job. And um, off to law school, I went. The way that law school works is that you, you, they have on-campus interviews from these big law firms. Usually the more prestigious the law school, they attract more prestigious law firms. So it's sort of a no-brainer by and large that you know, many people end up going down that track of, of corporate law, working for big law. And I fell into that cycle, uh, in, into that track, and um, uh, applied to several uh, big law firms, did a summer associate position, and was ultimately hired by one of them. But I knew within the first few months, my heart wasn't in the work. It was really difficult to work as a very low-tiered lawyer, helping a company go public and sell shares and you know negotiate this deal and that real estate transaction when we were about to go to war in Iraq. We were about to, you know, the war in Afghanistan had just started. Bin Laden hadn't been caught. There was essentially a, a breakout in extremist violence across the world. All of a sudden, none of the work I was doing really mattered to me relative to these big things. And I'm going to confess, I was, I was lost. I was, um, my heart wasn't in my work. It, it probably reflected in my work performance. I, I'm not proud to say it, but I can be honest about it. And um, I decided that I wanted to leave and, and um, do something else. And I didn't know what that was. And it was around that time that I ended up uh, meeting uh, my, my future fiance, my future wife, fiance at the time, I'm since divorced, but um, I ended up making decisions about what I wanted to do based on starting a family, did some legal work for uh, real estate firms. And I was, uh, I found myself just down. I said, this is, there's gotta be something more I can do. This can't be my journey. This can't be my arc, but you know, this is what I went to school for. I've now done grad school. I finished. What else should I be doing? And it was it took a lot of soul searching and really hitting emotionally rock bottom, um, professionally rock bottom. And I decided to claw my way out by applying for a PhD program in political science. Given that I had a child at that time, one child, I have three now, uh, I could only look at LA schools. There's USC and UCLA. It's a no brainer to go back to UCLA. The professor who I got to know very well, a different one, is a tenure there, uh, Steve Spiegel. He's uh, now since retired. He, um, he was a mentor to me as an undergrad and was in a capacity to be a mentor as a grad student as well. So I applied, got accepted and decided I wanna teach. I really want to, I, I wanna to contribute to the learning process. Um, not necessarily the research. I'm not a research focused uh, academic. I really believe in engaging with students and, and helping them understand some of the complexities that, that they face. So, um, I finished my PhD program in 2015 and have been teaching at UCLA as a lecturer um, in various departments since 2015. I'll be starting actually teaching in the law school come January. So I'm excited about that at, at UCLA. And a couple of years ago, um, as I was teaching, I, I was asked to participate uh, to help with a, um, a program at the Ronald Reagan Library about uh, helping with a um, exhibit there that simulates a presidential crisis in the process of doing so, I decided, wait a minute, I'm going to actually bring this concept of simulations into my own classes, having the students role play and learn through doing rather than reading or lecturing. And I did a war crimes simulation in one of my classes. The students loved it. I said, you know what, I'm going to see if I can do this for every class. And I turned it all in. I turned all my classes. They were reframed around this simulation experience. You usually would last three, four weeks out of the quarter. 
Um, and it, quarter after quarter, the feedback was amazing. Evaluations were great. The students loved it. And I thought, wow, maybe I can actually turn this into a business separate from what I'm doing, like help other faculty with it, um, help other institutions, help centers on this campus, on other campuses. And that's how my company, Fascination Lab, was, was born. And I'm proud now to say three years later, two and a half years later, um, we've taught over a thousand students at all campuses across the country, including UCLA, also at Stanford, Pepperdine. We just did a class at the Harvard Kennedy School um, uh, and um, excited to do one at Princeton soon and other campuses across the country and also high school, because I think um, this is something that high school students really would benefit from. So that is sort of my academic professional journey. You 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 kind of illuminated so many different um, important lessons that you learned along your journey, and I know that you know there are there are students out there, there are recent alumni out there who could completely relate to a lot of what you spoke to, especially when you mentioned that at a point you were doing some work and your heart wasn't into it, and you just felt lost at one point in time. And so, if you were meeting with you know a student right now or a recent alumni, somebody who's out there feeling lost, feeling like they're just, their heart is not into what they're doing, what advice would you have for them? The, that's a, I, I love that question. My first thing would be, that is totally okay. You do not need to know at 21, 22, 23, or 20, or even at 28, when I started my PhD program, what you want to do. It is not, it's, it's not, there's no rule, there's nothing that says this has to be your path. Um, the New York Times columnist David Brooks He's a controversial figure, but he wrote an interesting book a few years ago, and I think it's called The Two Mountains or something like that. It's got two mountains in the title. And he, he makes this case, which I felt resonated with my experience, that our whole lives were told in order to find fulfillment and happiness, right, we have to achieve something. And that's sort of we have to reach the peak of this mountain. For many, it's a professional or educational goal. As soon as I become a physician or an engineer or a lawyer or a politician or an entertainer or an artist, like then, then I'll get the happiness or the fulfillment. And oftentimes what happens is people hit this peak and then it's unfulfilling and, and they find that that's not, it wasn't it for them. And so what he argues is that really life is about two mountains. Your, your fulfillment, most probably, not all the time for everyone, but will probably come when you hit that second mountain. But you don't even know what that second mountain is. You first have to climb over the first, live in that valley in between, lost, confused, wondering if everything has been a waste and if you stick to your convictions and follow what you really want to do, inevitably, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll find that second mountain and that is where you'll, you'll find, you know, your fulfillment. So I, I use that um, concept a lot when I talk to students and I say, number one, be honest, be vulnerable, um, especially for, for, for men, let's say, right. Because we live in a culture where men feel a sense of they have to accomplish certain things and hit certain milestones to be perceived as men, to be perceived as masculine. So there's a lot of shame around failure, around um, not um, achieving certain benchmarks. Women absolutely have their version of this too. I don't mean to downplay it at all, but I'm speaking specifically to the men oftentimes who are the ones I, I would talk to during my office hours. And Shame is a horrible thing. It's, it's one of the worst things that our culture has had to endure. It's absolutely led to some of the most destructive human behaviors ever. Um, that aside, do not be ashamed. Do not be embarrassed. Own it. Own what you're feeling. The confusion, the anxiety, the self-doubt, perfectly normal. There is no rule that says you should not feel this. Don't put that off. By all means, seek 
um, help from mental health specialists, any, anybody that can help you process and put this in its proper context. You don't have to do this alone. And so when they come to me, my office hours end up being more therapy session than anything else, because I say, great, talk to me about your anxiety. Tell me about what you're afraid of the most. Let's, let's look at that and, and be honest with it and put that in front of you. And that's okay. Live in that uncertainty. Don't run from it. Don't mask it. Don't, you know, so, and I, and I tell them it'll take some time, which is why I encourage people take time before you go to the next step, grad school, whatever you want to do. I don't care what profession it is. I don't care if you, if you, if you have the luxury of not working and you want to live in some random place, do that. All of these things will help ultimately show you where your second mountain might be down the line. Maybe you'll be lucky and your first mountain is your only one that you need, but you won't know if you rush through this process and then you'll end up, you know, later in life unfulfilled about opportunities that you didn't take or things that you didn't consider. So I say, by all means, time is on your side. If I can, if I can go back to grad school at age 28, 29, yeah, I mean, I, I had a child, I was, you know, older than almost everyone else. If I can do it, and I can find my joy, and I love what I'm doing, you can too. And you don't have to wait as long as I did, but it's not the end of the world if you do. Yeah, so, so important. A lot of things that you talked about there. I, I love the idea of just owning where you are, not being embarrassed by it, taking your time, being patient. It's not a race. Uh, the two mountain analogies, super important as well. Tal Ben-Shahar, who wrote a book called Happier and, and some others, he has a mountain analogy as well about happiness. And he talks about like getting to the top isn't actually what fulfillment is. And, and it's also not wandering aimlessly around the mountain. It's actually having a goal that you care about. And the process of get, getting towards that goal is true, is where true fulfillment lies. And so I think, you know, you've illuminated a lot of that as well in, in some of what you're talking about. I could see why in the Bruin Walk student ratings, you, you get things, uh, Dr. Rad, things like my favorite class I've ever taken at UCLA. He's an incredible professor. He's amazing. His lectures are incredibly engaging. I can totally see all of that. And your students are lucky to take take a class from you. And, and I love you your do. emphasis. You're welcome. I, I love your emphasis on empathy too. And, and in design thinking, whether it's designing your life, designing your career, it, it begins with empathy, empathy for the, the, the people who are affected by the problem or yourself, just empathizing with understanding, like, look, it's, it's a difficult, difficult situation when there's such a crazy world right now, and you're trying to make big decisions. And so if, if a student comes to you and is really saying, you know, in today's world with the, the pandemic and, and everything shifting in the world of career, I'm feeling overwhelmed trying to make a decision. Uh, what are some steps you might give that student or some tips you might give them to help them make this process a little simpler and, and to succeed in this, in this new normal? Yeah. Um, be curious, and I'm going I'm to go back to that. Um, ask questions. If there's a professor that you like, if there is an employer, if there's someone interesting you meet, ask them questions. Ask about what do you do? What is it that you like about what you do? How did you get to doing you know, this? And, and what was your path like? Basically, what you do through your podcast, right? You bring people on and you get them to talk. And this is you're helping students develop the language to ask these questions. I think we the best way to overcome that confusion or doubt or being lost is to be, we all have to be our own interviewers of everyone that we encounter. Be curious about them, ask them, and not, you know, not just because you want to flatter them and make them feel good, you actually want to learn. The more you know about others' experiences or about other opportunities, all of a sudden your options become clearer eventually. But if you don't, 
If you don't do this, then it seems overwhelming. You're like, where do I begin? I'm lost. You begin by asking questions. So I would tell them, come to office hours. We don't have to talk about the course. Ask me anything that you want. And oftentimes it'll be like, how did you get to, you know, how did you decide this or what brought you to this? And from there, the students get some clarity and then they can go talk to someone else. I'll point them in another direction or they get an idea to, to talk to this person. And eventually over the four years, and that's what I tell them, you know, start early, start your freshman year if you can. You, you refine this and more and more. And then maybe you take a year or two, a gap year, and then you refine this even further. It doesn't become so overwhelming when you do it this way. But it starts by, by talking, by, by asking questions, by being curious. You don't have to be interested. Be curious. Yeah, that's terrific. There's a wonderful exercise in a book called How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and the exercise is the 100 questions exercise. And it, it's for students to try to figure out you know, their purpose or their path. They just start writing questions that they're curious about. And you try to get to 100 and you do it in one sitting and, and literally just write whatever, whatever questions come to your mind that you're curious about in the world. And then you start to go over that 100 questions and you pick the 10 most interesting to you and then you look for themes. And mm -hmm. I think it's totally helpful. And, and, and you're really getting at that with your be curious, um, you know, advice. I know I want to come back to Fascination Lab because I love the learn, earn, and return that you've come up with on your on your website, and I think that's so so interesting. And maybe talk a little bit about what involved learning is, lessons to learn, and skills that earn, and opportunities to explore and practice empathy. This is all uh, really interesting. Can can you talk a little bit more about that, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's start with the first part of that that trifecta of of learn. Learning happens in many different ways. Um, there's a there's an expression from uh, the novelist Tom Bodell that I like to use, which basically says, we go to school, we're given lessons, and then we're tested on those lessons. But then in life, we are tested and then meant to draw lessons from those tests. So I wanted to bring a little bit of that into the educational experience, right? There's nothing that says learning has to be done by having someone recite something to you, you then reprocess it and give it back to him or her in the form of an essay or a test or some presentation. That really some of the best learning happens when you experience, when you're an active participant, whether it's role playing, whether it's game playing, whether it's something that involves you creating or shaping a decision or having to know what it's like to, to, to do a certain job or a certain task. So what we've emphasized, what I've emphasized in my company philosophy is that that active learning where you're, you, the student, are actually doing more of the teaching than I am as the instructor, that's where some of the best and the deepest learning happens. The goal is to teach you those things that will endure with you after my class is over. I don't want you to just know about the history of the Cold War, let's say if you take a class I'm teaching, or the politics of the Middle East. I actually want you to know how to give a presentation, how to advocate on behalf of an issue, how to collaborate with a group how to negotiate, how to handle a crisis, how to present. I want you to learn all these real soft skills that are actually power skills. And you will take these with you, regardless of what career or goal path you have afterwards. So in an active learning environment, you are learning those fundamental skills beyond the subject, because you're going to forget the subject that I teach you. But you are going to remember that, wow, in, in, in this class, you learned, you didn't realize you were, you know, you were terrified of public speaking, but I, I assigned you a role to be a public speaker as part of this simulation. And lo and behold, you were good at it. You loved it. Or maybe you found out that your niche is, is doing audio video presentations to support the rest of your group or any, any number of things. The idea of active involved learning and finding out what you're good at 
and letting you exploit that and make the most of it and not have you be a passive participant in a classroom where I'm lecturing to you and I'm not inviting you to give back to me because that's, in, in my classes, I would run them that way where half of the time is spent me asking the students questions and loan, you know, it's amazing. You learn from them. I learn from them. They learn from each other. It gets everyone involved. You all have a stake in this, right? You're all paying to be here. Um, and my job is to really bring out the best in you and to help you learn from one another and not just from me. I don't have a monopoly on knowledge or experience. Um, I just kind of have a roadmap to point you in the direction. So that's, that's what the active and involved learning process is. Now, once you learn, great, you have this body of knowledge, you have the skills that hopefully I've taught you or that UCLA has taught you, then you go out into the world and you, you, know, you earn whatever that earning is, whether it's financial capital, whether it's some other kind of capital, you know, human capital, um, you, you accumulate credibility, authority, experience. That's the earning part, right? You take whatever that job or that career path can give you and you amass it. And then you, once you have that, once you have a position of knowledge, authority, power, um, uh, leverage, whatever you want to call it, then you have a responsibility to your community. And you can define the word community however way you want to, whether it's your neighborhood, your city, your government, your country, whether it's global, that's up to you. But we are absolutely all inhabitants of the same planet. We are citizens of the same country. We are residents of the same town or city or county. And if, if anything of the last few years has taught us is that we, you know, decisions made in a small area can impact so many. So the return aspect of this is that you are obligated, I think, to be a good civic, you know, a responsible civic citizen to take what you have been given and what you've also earned yourself and to find a way to pass that on and to give back. It doesn't mean charity, but it means being charitable. It means being generous. It means being um, tolerant, but most importantly of all those is empathy. And in my classes, I stress, and in my games that I designed through Fascination Lab and for my own lectures, I stress empathy more than anything because, and I tell students, even if you're playing a simulation game in my class where you're negotiating a nuclear treaty, let's say between Iran and the United States, these two countries are adversaries, they're um, enemies. I tell my students, you still want to empathize with the other side. That doesn't mean you have to like them, doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It just means you have to see the world or the issue as they see it. That will make you a better negotiator, it'll make you a better ally, it'll make you a better partner, a friend, a you name it, right? With empathy, you're empowered. So I don't need you to like someone, I just need you to understand and see the world as they see it. And if that makes you open up to them a bit more, if it makes you actually like them, that's not a bad thing. But at the end of the day, it empowers you to make a good decision rather than one based on pure emotion and um, ignorance. So that's the that sort of that completes the circle or the the tripod of um, a learn, earn, and return. I think then you know, and then you you don't end that process because. I want everyone to be lifelong learners. You don't stop learning when you finish school. You, you, and I remember my law school dean uh, on, the, on the first day of class at Stanford, she, the sort of the, the talk that she gave us, and she said, you know, never stop being curious, never stop reading, never stop learning. Um, because when you do that, then you, you're, you know, you basically shut yourself off um, and you're stunting your own development and you can continue this all the way through old age. So, that's why that cycle of learn and return should never really end. And if you're doing it right, all of it's fine. None of it feels like work. Yeah, that's a really thoughtful answer. I appreciate everything you had to say there. And um, 
with with thinking about your life, you've done you've done so much already with your career in life. Do you still have things on your career bucket list or your life bucket list? Yes. Um, I um, and the other thing I tell I like to tell my students is find what you do. Hopefully, uh, yeah, excuse me. Find what you love to do. Hopefully, you'll get to do that professionally. But but please have a hobby or a passion or something that is separate. Um, yes, some people can make their passions, their careers, or their hobbies, their careers, but it's important that you have something that, that's not your main line of work. Ideally, it's something creative, but it doesn't have to be. But I think if it's creative, it's awesome. And for me, it's been music. Um, I've been sort of a hobbyist, aspiring musician for a very, actually, my first roommate at UCLA, Joe, brought a guitar and started playing. And I was like, oh my God, this is so awesome. I grew up playing piano. And you couldn't really play for others because it's a big instrument. And um, I, I, re I really got into song writing and song and, and, and composing. And I've never had the confidence really to, to put it out there. So, you know, so I'm, I'm getting closer. Uh, sometime in the next few months or maybe the next few years, my goal is to actually write, compose, produce something and put it out there and maybe even perform it publicly. I've done a few performances with 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 bands here and there, but um, it's something that I would love to do as sort of a, you know, on, on the side gig. Um, our current Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, before he became Secretary of State, he was part, I think, of a blues quartet where he played guitar. And, and, the, and here he is now Secretary of State. So it's like that kind of thing, I think, it doesn't necessarily make him a better Secretary of State, but you better believe that some of what he, the, the creativity, the thinking like a musician, thinking work, what it's like to play and perform with others, what it's like to get up in front of an audience, to create, to write, um, that enriches me. It makes me a better father, makes me a better educator, makes me a better um, entrepreneur. And it, it brings me joy in the way that teaching, you know, does brings me a lot of joy, but, the, but performing in music and creating brings something else. So that on my bucket list is to basically put out an EP or an LP of, of original songs. That's wonderful. Yeah, I can't I, I can't agree more. Having hobbies, having different ways of of defining your identity, you know, being a professor, a dad, a musician, and, and the list goes on and on. Um, I think that really helps people with their confidence because sometimes when an area of their life isn't going so well, they have these other areas that they can lean into and, and get joy or fulfillment Absolutely. from. Um, you might have already answered this with your be curious statement, but I like to wrap up with one last question about if, if, you know, if you could put a sign on one of those planes that goes by on the beach, you know, people look up and there's a big sign waving behind a prop plane and, and it was just a sign, some, you know, piece of advice you wanted to leave people or a message you wanted to give people, uh, what would you want to put on that, that sign, Ben? You do not have to be ashamed. And by that, I mean, do not let shame or the fear of shame dictate and govern your life and keep you from reaching your full potential. I think even beyond be curious, because you can't even be curious if you are, have the anxiety or the, or the crippling debilitation that, that shame or feeling like you haven't accomplished or failed to live up to someone's expectations or your own expectations. That is one of the worst things that we do to ourselves. Society can do that to us. Bullies can do that to us. Peer pressure, social media, all of these things can bring out those negative attributes, those negative, really dysregulating emotion of, of, of shame. You do not have to be ruled or governed by shame. Um, and I think that would be the one thing that I would tell everybody, find whatever it is that's holding you back because you're afraid 
of failure, you're afraid of embarrassment, you're afraid of someone judging you. That is work on, on, on not feeling that. That is before you can even reach your potential, you can't let shame control you. Yeah, oh, that's that's beautiful and very profound. Uh, this has been so engaging and interesting. If if people want to learn more about you um, or follow you, is there a way they can get more information about you, Ben? Yeah, um, actually, yes. And oh, one thing to mention, I, I had this amazing opportunity, thanks to UCLA also, that I got to be featured as an on-camera expert for um, a Netflix documentary. It's a six-part series called How to Be a Tyrant. Um, and it's narrated by Peter Dinklage, who was on Game of Thrones, and I'm in episode two, the Saddam Hussein episode in episode six. And um, so I've, I've sort of out there now uh, a bit because of that. Um, my name pops up here and there. And uh, so you can follow me on, on Twitter at Benjamin Rad. Um, I'm on the UCLA media relations page for um, Middle East experts. You can just, you know, Google, look me up there. And uh, through my company, fascinationlab.co. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I, I love to really interact with people and, and help anyone with their journey as, as much as I can, whether they're a student, a colleague, a friend, or somebody I don't even know who I can help in some way. That's terrific. Well, thanks again for doing this, Ben. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Jordan. Be well. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Tune in to the next episode of Designing Your Career in Life for another provocative interview discussing career-related topics that inspire, transform, and empower you on a path towards a meaningful life. Remember, every single one of you has a purpose. It's developed from your passion. And when one is on point with that purpose, it can help change the world for the better. I'm Jordan Manis reminding you to design your life or someone else will. See you next time.